Amen. In Luke chapter 2, verse 4, it says, And Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family line of David, to be registered along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. Then she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him snugly in cloth and laid him in a feeding trough because there was no room for them at the lodging place. This is the account of the birth of Jesus. The story of Christmas. And the word Christmas means Christ sent. It is the story of the nativity. The word nativity meaning the circumstances of Jesus being born. All of us here this morning know that Jesus was born. We know the story of the birth of Christ. But today I want you to think about more than that. I want you to think about the reason, the purpose my message this morning is why Jesus was born. Why Jesus was born. And I'm going to take it from a part of the Bible that points to the coming of Jesus. And that part of the Bible is the Old Testament. That's why I didn't have you turn anywhere. Because our text this morning is the Old Testament. How about that? Anybody a little nervous? Anybody thinking, am I going to make it to family dinner for Christmas? We're going to look at some passages in the Old Testament that not only talk about His birth, but also talk about why Jesus would be born and what Jesus would be born to do. So, I don't want to in any way, take away from your experience of Christmas by placing your focus somewhere else. I, I want you to see Bethlehem. I want you to see the birth. I want you to see the manger. I certainly want you to see the baby. But I want you to see more. I want you to see much more. I want us to see why Jesus was born. First, I want us to see that Jesus was born to be a conqueror. Jesus was born to be a conqueror. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And God help you if you have to use the table of contents to find Genesis chapter 3. Unless this is the first time you've ever heard about the Bible. In that case, you're certainly excused. Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is in the context of Adam and Eve having eaten the forbidden fruit. 
God has told them what the consequences of that are going to be for them. And in verse 15, we find God announcing His judgment on the serpent. The serpent who is Satan. And He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. The word seed here is interesting because it's not plural. It's singular. In that sense, this is the first explicit prophecy to Jesus in all of the Scripture. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your seed, Satan, and the seed of this woman, the one that would come from this woman who would be Jesus. He will strike your head, a death blow, and you will strike his heel. I say that Jesus was born to be a conqueror because according to this verse, Jesus would strike Satan. He would strike the head of Satan. When I learned this verse growing up, I learned it this way. He will crush your head. It means that Jesus was born to defeat or to conquer Satan. And remember that Satan is the author of sin. He's the one where... All of that got started with His rebellion in heaven and then with Adam and Eve's rebellion that He led here on earth. Satan is the tempter. Satan is the deceiver, the liar, the one who distorts and twists the very Word of God. Satan is the murderer, beginning here with the spiritual murder of Adam and Eve. And a generation later with Cain's murder of Abel and every murder since then, Satan is our enemy according to this verse. God said there would be hostility or strife or enmity or war between Satan and this woman and those that would come from this woman who was Eve. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it compares Satan to a lion who roams around roaring, seeking people that he can devour or destroy. Jesus was born to conquer all of this. And He did. Jesus has conquered Satan. Jesus has conquered the one who tempts us as He faced the temptation of Satan during His earthly life. Jesus has conquered the deceiver, the liar, by being the truth and bringing the truth. Jesus has conquered the murderer. Jesus has conquered sin. Jesus has conquered the consequences and the penalty for sin, including death in His own death and victorious resurrection over death. Through repentance and faith in Jesus, we are more than conquerors, the Scripture says. How about that? Through turning 
from our sin that began with Grandpa Adam and Grandma Eve and starts in us even at conception and then we carry it out in our own life through turning from our sin, ultimately of rebelling against Jesus and rejecting Him and receiving Him through faith as Lord and Savior and counting on what He's done in His life and death and resurrection. We are conquerors too. But it's only through Him. Because you see, through Adam, we're not conquerors at all. We're losers. Do you get that? On our own, we are not winners at all. It doesn't matter how often you look in the mirror, like the person off Saturday Night Live, I'm great, I'm good, I'm handsome, I'm nice, and by golly, people love me. I'm a win. Doesn't matter how much you say that, how many posters you put up in your room, how many self help books you read that tell you that on our own, we are losers, but in Christ, and in Christ alone, we're winners. Jesus being born to be a conqueror explains. The extreme opposition to the birth of Jesus. If Satan knew that he had been born to conquer him, going all the way back to these words of God in Genesis 3.15, then it certainly explains why he did so much to keep him from being born in the first place. And why he tried to kill him after he was born. Jesus was born to be a conqueror. Second, I want you to see this morning that Jesus was born to be a sacrifice. Flip over to Genesis chapter 22, verse 7. Genesis 22, verse 7. Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham and Isaac. When God had told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his one and only son, The son that he loved very much. And as they were making their way to the place of sacrifice, in verse 7, the middle part, Isaac said to his father Abraham, The fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. And He did. He did. Jesus was born to be a sacrifice. He was, He would be the lamb that God provided on the mountain of the Lord. God provided a lamb As a sacrifice, we could say that Jesus was born to die. We could say that about all of us, but in a much more real and specific sense. Jesus was born to die. Do you remember the words of Simeon to Mary when Jesus was eight days old and they took Him 
to the temple to do all of the stuff that they did with the birth of their firstborn son. And Simeon said to Mary prophetically, What will happen to him will pierce your heart as with a sword. A a reference, a prophecy about his death. Jesus was born to die. In the place of all who had believed on Him, in the place of all who would believe on Him, Jesus would be a substitute as the Lamb in Genesis 22, the Ram, became a substitute for Isaac. On that occasion, Jesus would ultimately be our substitute. He would die as an offering for our sin. To take upon Himself our sins. To take the punishment for our sins. To satisfy the wrath of God against our sin. To atone for or make right the enmity that exists between God and us because of our sin. This imagery of Jesus being born to be a sacrifice is imagery that you not only see here in Genesis 22, but throughout the Old Testament. The whole sacrificial system points to Jesus being the sacrifice. Think about the story of the Passover lamb in Exodus chapter 12. Think about the story of the Day of Atonement. In Leviticus chapter 16, Jesus was born to be a sacrifice. Third, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be the Savior. Jesus was born to be the Savior. Flip over a few chapters to Genesis 26 and look at verse 4. This is the account of God repeating to Isaac the covenant that he had made with Isaac's father, Abraham. And that is much more famously found and recounted for us in Genesis chapter 12, where God spoke to Abraham and he said, I'm going to enter into a covenant with you. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to give you a a people, a great nation is going to come from you. And I'm going to give to you and your people this land. And not only am I going to bless you, I'm going to bless all of the peoples, all of the different people groups, all of the nations of the world. I'm taking us to the repetition of this covenant to Isaac because of some specific language that it uses here to point us to Jesus. Genesis 26, 4. I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky. I will give your offspring all these lands and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring. All the nations of the world will be blessed by your offspring. Now what's interesting is that word that's translated offspring here is the same word that in Genesis chapter 3 was translated seed. Singular. 
God's plan for blessing the nations, including us, as Gentiles, was through Jesus. And the blessing that He's speaking of here is ultimately the blessing of salvation. Salvation meaning God being our God. Our being His people. Being a part of a covenant relationship with God in which the parts of the covenant are solely dependent on Him to be kept. We have an eternal relationship with God through this covenant in Christ Jesus. Salvation in this sense would mean God working for us as opposed to working against us. God working to rescue us, to deliver us, to help us, to save us. And He would do it through the offspring of Abraham, the offspring of Isaac, that ultimate offspring being Jesus. And notice here that even as God is repeating this covenant to a patriarch of the nation of Israel, it was never limited to just Israel, was it? God's plan all along was to save people from all the peoples of the world. Going all the way back to when the covenant got started, and for that matter, going all the way back to when Israel got its start in Abraham. In Revelation chapter 5, songs of praise are sung in heaven for Jesus who has redeemed for Himself Peoples from all the nations. In Revelation chapter 7, we see the great crowd that could not be numbered in heaven, made up of all the peoples, all the ethnicities of the world. Jesus was born to be the Savior. We see that in His very name, Jesus. When God through His angel announced to Joseph, that Mary would have this son, He said to him, His name will be called Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. The very name Jesus means Savior. The message of the angels to the shepherds on the night of Christ's birth was a message of good news and great joy for all people. Because on that night, in the city of David, a Savior had been born. Jesus was born to be the Savior. Fourth, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be the King. Jesus was born to be the King. Flip over to Genesis chapter 49, verse 9. This chapter is the story of Jacob coming to the end of his life. And gathering his sons before him to bless them. To prophesy about them what their future and the future of the tribes that would come from them would be. When he got to his son Judah, he says in verse 9, Judah is a young lion... My son, you return from the keel. He crouches. He lies down like a lion or a lioness. Who dares to rouse him? 
Verse 8 had spoken of how his own brothers would praise him, would be beneath him, that his hand would be on their necks, that they would bow down to him. Verse 10 then says, The scepter will not depart from Judah, the scepter, uh, that instrument that represented rule, or the staff from between his feet, until he whose right it is comes, and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. Do you see? What Jacob was prophesying? That though Judah wouldn't be a king, he would be the tribe of kings. And that a king would come from him. That king would be Jesus. Jesus then is the line of Judah. He is. Hard to picture a baby as a line, but he's a line. And at this point, we can see or have seen Jesus in both ways, a lamb and a lion. This is the way John the Apostle sees him in Revelation 4. Remember, it was announced to John the Apostle, don't cry, someone is worthy to open the scroll and to bring God's plan to bring the world to its end. Someone's been found. He is the Lion of Judah. And when John turned and looked, he did not see a lion, but he saw a lamb. A lamb who had been slain. Jesus then is the King of Israel. But even as that's being announced in Genesis 49, what's also being announced is that Jesus would be the King of the world. Because it referenced there that all peoples would owe their obedience unto Him. And we do. It doesn't matter whether one acknowledges Jesus as King or not. Jesus is still the King. And we all owe our obedience to this babe whose birth we celebrate at Christmas. And as the King, if we do not acknowledge Him and render unto Him our obedience and worship, then there will be consequences to pay when the King comes again. Jesus then is the fulfillment of the promises here, the prophecies here about Judah. But He's also the the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with David. Are you familiar with that? 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles. Reference throughout the Old Testament after those points that from David would come a king who would establish a kingdom and that kingdom would have no end. It would be an eternal kingdom. Jesus was the fulfillment of this. He is. He is in that sense the son of David. It's no coincidence then that He was born in the city of David, which is Bethlehem. He came to establish a kingdom, the very kingdom of God. That was the theme of His preaching when He came. Repent. The only way that you can be a part of this kingdom that I've come to establish is to turn from your sins to Me in faith. And He will come again, just as He came that first time. But He won't be coming as a baby. And He won't be coming in a manger. And He won't be coming in such a way that people don't understand 
who He is, He will come as that line, as that King, to establish His kingdom eternally. Daniel spoke of that in Daniel chapter 7. And when the King comes, He will bring with Him justice. Isn't it a shame that down through the years, the people that God has appointed for the good of the people of the world to bring about justice have oftentimes been the most unjust people. And it won't be that way with Jesus. He will bring justice and judgment and peace and real prosperity. The wise men who have over time for us become a part of the Christmas story, even though they weren't there on that night, came to worship a king. They gave him gifts befitting a king. What they didn't know though is that he wasn't just a king. He was the king. The king of kings. Jesus came Jesus was born to be the king. Fifth, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be the prophet. Jesus was born to be the prophet. Flip over to Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Turn right four books and you'll get there. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. Y'all frozen this morning? Sort of dead in here today, or is it just me? Come on now. We don't want to have to sing if you're happy and you know it. I mean, I'm not preaching on hell this morning. I'm not preaching on predestination this morning. I'm preaching on Jesus. If we can't be happy about all these wonderful things that are being said about Jesus, then we may as well just dismiss because we're never going to be happy. Were you clapping because I mentioned dismissing? <laughs> no, I'm picking it. <laughs> All right, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen says the Lord. This is Moses speaking to Israel. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. And he was talking about Jesus. And the way we know this is because the New Testament interprets it that way. Stephen did in his sermon that led to his being killed. It was referred to earlier in that way by Peter in one of his as well. Jesus was born to be the prophet. To be the one who would speak for God. Thus says the Lord. And Unlike the prophets who had come before, He would speak in a a better way. The best way. A new way. He would speak about the law of God, just like Moses had. But He would speak about how He had come to fulfill it. He would speak about sin. People's breaking of the law of God. All people's. 
not just breaking the letter of God's law, but the Spirit. He would speak about judgment against that sin. Hell. He would speak about salvation, about righteousness. The 40th Psalm in prophesying of the Messiah said that He would speak about righteousness, about how to be right with God. About how His perfection would ultimately count for those who would believe on Him. In John chapter 1, verse 1, we were introduced to Jesus as being the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It makes sense then that Jesus is this prophesied prophet who would come, the Word of God. As the Word of God, He revealed the way to God. Do you know that Jesus was the stairway to heaven that Jacob dreamed about? The way to God. Says as much early in the Gospel of John. Jesus would reveal the grace of God. The 45th Psalm said that the Messiah would do this. He would reveal the truth of God, the life of God, the Word of God that we would know as the New Testament or the Bible. And in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, And the Word, this prophet that would speak for God, and the Word became flesh. And dwelt among us. Jesus was born to be the prophet. Sixth, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be the Redeemer. Flip over to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, verse 14. Ruth, chapter 4, verse 14. Ruth is the story of, now this is going to come as a big surprise. Ruth. Maybe you're familiar with the story of how Ruth and her mother-in-law Naomi had had to flee uh, the land of Naomi and her family because of a famine. And in that foreign land, Naomi's husband and Ruth's husband died. And they make their way back to their homeland, or at least what would be the homeland for Naomi. And as widows in that day, they were destitute and poor and without much hope of things getting better. Unless Ruth could get remarried. And boy, did she get remarried. I mean, she hit a home run. A real jackpot. And in Ruth chapter 4, verse 14... It shows us how her knight in shining armor really pointed to an even brighter night. Then the women said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. Boaz came on the scene, discovered Ruth, or we know the backstory was discovered by Ruth and the plot of her mother-in-law, Naomi. But really what we know is they were brought together by God. And He purchased her from one who had a higher right to her. And with her, Naomi. I don't mean purchased as a slave, but to have as His own, to be His wife. He was a kinsman. Redeemer, a family redeemer, purchasing her in that way. 
So the women said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has not left you without a family redeemer today. May His name become well known in Israel. Child of God, we can all celebrate at this Christmas season. Because God has not left us without a family redeemer. We were all widowed roots. Picking up the leftover grain out in the field just to barely make it by. When the most handsome of all men and the most worthy of all men that this world has ever known took notice of us. And took us to be His bride. Made us a part of His family. Purchasing us, not with silver or gold, but with His own blood. Jesus is our Boaz. Jesus is our groom. Jesus is the lover of our souls. Read the Song of Solomon in a fresh and new way to be a picture of the love that exists between God and His people, Christ and His people. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Make His name well known. Not Boaz's name, but the name of Boaz's descendant, Jesus. Make His name well known. In Luke chapter 1, verse 68, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, said, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because He has visited and provided redemption, a payment for His people. Jesus was born to be our Redeemer. Seventh, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be the priest. Flip over just a couple of pages, maybe, to 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35. At this time, Eli was the high priest, and he was a faithful high priest. But he was nearing death. And his two sons weren't faithful at all. And they were not fit to be the next high priest. So in the providence of God... He had miraculously provided a son for a woman who was barren. And he would become the next priest. We know him as Samuel. In 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 35, God is speaking to Eli. And he says, then I will raise up a faithful priest for myself. He will do whatever is in my heart and mind. I will establish a lasting dynasty for Him and He will walk before my anointed one for all time. In the short term, God was talking about Samuel that was already as a child serving under Eli. But in the long term, He was talking about Jesus. A faithful priest. And at this point in our journey through the Old Testament, we've already seen now the image of Jesus as the prophet, the priest, 
and the king. Which is the significance of a word that we throw around with Jesus like it's his last name, and yet it's not, that word being Christ. Christ means Messiah. Both words mean the anointed one. And they would have thought, when they would have thought about the anointed one, they were thinking about three types of people that were anointed. Prophets were anointed. Priests were anointed. Kings were anointed. Jesus would fulfill all of those roles. All of those ministries. The anointed one. As the priest. Jesus is our representative. He is our mediator. He is our intercessor. Job spoke about the need when standing before God to have someone take the hand of God and someone take His hand. And we all feel that way or should feel that way when it comes to standing before God who is so different than we are. We need a mediator. Jesus is that one. He is that priest. He is the one who has represented God to the people and then in turn, the people back to God. He is a sympathetic and compassionate high priest because He's one of us. He's the high priest. He has established an eternal priesthood likened to the priesthood of Melchizedek who was introduced to us in Genesis 14 or is introduced in Genesis 14. The priesthood of Christ is the final priesthood. That's why we don't have priests anymore. I'm not a priest. Priests are nowhere mentioned in the New Testament as being offices in the New Testament church. The reason we don't have priests, and nobody else should for that matter, is because we don't need a mere human to stand in our place before God when the high priest has already come. And yet, we are a part of the priesthood of Jesus. For the New Testament speaks of us being a kingdom of priests. And what that means is we now, in a way, represent God to the people of the world and go before God on behalf of the people of the world. And we do it with the gospel. And we do it with prayer. Jesus was born to be a priest. Eighth, and finally, I have more. I probably could go to Christmas, but I'll stop with eight. I had twelve, but I'll do eight. I thought twelve was like symbolic for the tribes and the apostles or something like that. I don't know what eight symbolizes, but we've stopped with eight because the bell is tolling. Eighth, I want you to see that Jesus was born to be a sign. Jesus was born to be a sign. Now flip over to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Jesus was born... To be a sign. 
In Isaiah 7, the king of Judah was a wicked king by the name of Ahaz. And enemies, including the king from the northern tribe of Israel, had joined together to make war against him and Judah. And he was sore afraid. God, in His mercy, spoke to wicked Ahaz and said, Don't be afraid. They're not going to do anything to you. And God said to Ahaz, in His extended mercy, Ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign that will prove that I'll be faithful to do what I said I would do. And Ahaz... (laughs) You might get it, this this probably works this way with most of us. When God tells us not to ask for signs, we ask for signs. But when He tells us to ask for signs, we then are so spiritual we won't ask for a sign. So Ahaz says, no, I'd never ask you for a sign as if he was a great beacon of faith in the congregation of God's people. And God said, well, that's all right, I'll give you one anyway. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. In the short term, there was some fulfillment of that in the birth of a son to the prophet Isaiah. And it was a sign of the presence of God among Judah. And because of His presence, a sign of their salvation from these enemies, their protection, God's protection. But ultimately, this sign has been fulfilled in Jesus, born to the Virgin Mary, and His name is Emmanuel. When I say that Jesus was born to be a sign, I mean it in the same way it was meant to Ahaz, He is a sign of the presence of God. Therefore, if you're in the presence of God, there is salvation in God. Protection from all of the enemies against us, ultimately enemies of our soul in Christ. But I'll take it a step further. Jesus isn't merely a sign of the presence of God. Jesus is the very presence of God. The physical embodiment of the invisible God. His name would be called Emmanuel. This passage re-quoted in Matthew 1.23 about Jesus. This one that would be born to Mary. His name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. So when you think about the baby, think about that. Think about the lyrics of of Mark Lowry's Christian classic Christmas song, Mary Did You Know. When you kiss the little baby, you kiss the face of God. Think about the lyrics that we sang this morning. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Not just flesh, but baby flesh. How about that? Veiled in flesh. Pudgy, roly, 
skin all over the place, baby flesh, veiled in that sort of flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Isaiah 9, 6 then speaks of this even more clearly. For a child will be born for us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. In Luke 2, 12, the angel spoke to the shepherds about a sign. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Simeon said to Mary that this child that she was holding would be a sign to the people of Israel. Jesus was born to be a sign. Now, I could say more. I was going to say that we would see that Jesus was born to be a healer. Isaiah 35, Jesus was born to be the light. Isaiah 42, Jesus was born to be a servant. Isaiah 52 and 53, Jesus was born to be a shepherd. Micah chapter 5, verse 4, Psalm 23. Having said all of that, I want you to come back to Bethlehem now. I want you to come back to the birth, to the Christmas story. Matthew one twenty five, the latter part says, And she gave birth to a son, and he, Joseph, named him Jesus. Can you see the baby? But don't just stop with the baby. See more. See a conqueror. See a sacrifice, a savior, a king, a prophet, a redeemer, a priest, a sign, a healer, the light, a servant, the shepherd. And the good news that the angels came to proclaim is that this Jesus born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem can be all of these things for you. You can be the beneficiary of all these things if you believe. If you will trust in who He is and what He's done to forgive you of your sins and give you eternal life and make you right with God. So, believe. You know what God wants us to do during the Christmas season? It's just the same thing He always wants us to do, to believe and to keep believing. This, this is why Jesus was born. Would you stand with me and bow your heads and close your eyes?